All right. Let me see. Uh, yeah, first service was a little down because they had to, um, you know, scrape away two inches of ice uh, to get out. When I woke up in the morning, we did the, um, for my kids, you do that test where it's like, man, it's going to get pretty cold tonight. Let's like make sure there's some buckets filled with water and stuff and we'll see if it gets frozen. You know, you ever do that when you're little? Well, it was ice. It was frozen. And so we're like, can we go ice skating on this stuff? I, maybe, maybe. So it's pretty cold. Uh, a couple introductory notes before we get started. Um, we are back in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. We took that short break for our Christmas series, but now we're back, which means there'll be small group curriculum for you uh, in the back as you leave at the Connect table. Second, I wanted to bring your attention to something you'll hear more about next week, but we're going to be starting another semester of School of Theology. Some of you know what that is. Some of you have been a part of it. A lot of people have been a part of it. But with this next one, we thought of um, almost creating a way to do a a membership class uh, as we work through some other things. Many of you know we're working through sort of our membership curriculum if you want to become a member of the church. And so part of the membership course is pretty much some basic Christian theology, but the semester for our school of theology is also basic Christian theology, but rather than like little 20-minute teaching sessions, they're five 90-minute sessions. So there'll be two kind of like ramps or roads for our School of Theology this semester, the normal one, which many of you participate in. You can also sign up for that if this is your, if you can jump right in. Um, but also, if you're interested in becoming a member of the church, you do this School of Theology, we'll count it as membership curriculum because it's literally four times as long. Um, and, and then we can move forward from there. So you'll hear more about that, but I want to put it on your radar because it'll be coming up in mid to late January. And third, uh, some good news. As many of you know, if you were here in December, we talked about year in giving, churches and nonprofits. We, you know the drill, we rely on a significant amount of, of, of our annual giving to come in the month of December. And so we have special goals for the month of December. And so uh, once again, this church was incredibly generous and faithful, and we met our year in goals both in Gilroy and our Hollister campus. So it enables us to enter 22, sounds weird to say, 22. Come a long way. We'll enter the year 2022 uh, on good footing to be about our father's business. So good news on that. Now, speaking of our father's business, I cannot think of a better way to start the new year than the way we will do today. Right where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew several weeks ago now was the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, which means at the start of this year, entering into the new year, we'll tackle this prayer. And as we do so, you have to understand, like, we are in sacred text, and as we talk about this, we are in sacred space and sacred time. This is the greatest prayer ever given by the greatest teacher to ever teach in the greatest sermon ever preached. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. It's like powerful, powerful stuff here. So let's dig in. Jesus sets up the Lord's Prayer with this introduction. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. Okay, this is how Jesus 
introduces the Lord's Prayer, and there's a couple things we have to look at. First, this word Gentiles. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles do. And this can be a tricky word because it can, it can have a range of meaning. In one sense, the word Gentile just mean, means anyone who is not Jewish. So Jews in first century Israel called everyone else but the people, their people, the Jewish people, Gentiles. But it also can refer to the religious practices of those people outside of Israel. So sometimes the word will be translated pagan because it's referring to the polytheistic religions of the nations, people who worship many gods and goddesses. And so that's sort of the, the take that Jesus is using right here. Don't pray like the Gentiles do, the, the, the pagan way. That's not how we're to pray. We don't heap up, it says, empty phrases. And this empty phrases uh, is a Greek word, the baralageo, and it's an, it's an instance of onomatopoeia, if you're like into that deep level grammar stuff. Some of you, I know you like it, because whenever I talk about it, there's some smiles, and then there's some, you know, eyebrows. <laughs> Why are we doing this? I'm at church, I didn't come here for this. But onom- onomatopoeia, it, it, this baralageo, it, it's where the way the word sounds is also the word, uh, the, what it's trying to describe. So fireworks go boom. The word boom is the word to describe the sound, but it also sounds like the sound that it's making and describing. Fireworks go boom. And so Jesus is saying, don't heap up the empty phrases. Don't do the baralageo thing, like the babbling type of thing. Don't just babble and say nonsense. And what he's getting at is this, is that people in the pagan system would have long prayers, they'd babble, sometimes it would make sense, sometimes it'd be nonsensical, but ultimately at the heart of it was the attempt to manipulate the gods or goddesses to giving you your desired outcome. And Jesus says, that's not the way we pray. Why? We don't try to manipulate the gods with this bottle of ghetto and our words and our empty phrases and by the length of our prayers, because the Father already knows what you need before you even ask it. Before you ask it, the Father already knows. And so Christian prayer starts from, uh, from a fundamentally different position. Now there's also a super important line here at the ver- very beginning. It says, and when you pray. And when you pray. The Greek here can also be translated something along the lines of, and whenever you pray. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to us, but it would be for the first century hearers. Jews in the first century world would have three times a day, at minimum, they would pray. It was set apart. You'd have your morning prayers, your afternoon prayers, and your evening prayers. They would be carved out chunks of time where you would recite memorized prayers. You would also, in addition to saying memorized prayers, you would have um, words that would be from something akin to like, from your heart or spontaneous prayers. Or from the streets, it's like freestyle prayers. It, it, you know, it's like this, it's not a memorized liturgical kind of fashion prayers. So memorized prayers, and there's these spontaneous prayers, but there'd be set times throughout the day. And everyone knew it. It was morning, afternoon, and evening. Three set times to pray. And so when people hear Jesus in this context say, whenever you pray, they at minimum would assume those three times a day, I'm called to recite the Lord's Prayer. Now, we know this is the way the first Christians understood this because we have a late first century document. We're talking within a hundred years of the New Testament. And this document is called the Didache. And in it, it talks about the Lord's Prayer. 
And it says you are to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day because the first Christians just swam in the stream of the Jewish faith and they're like, well, of course, we're, why would we not pray three times a day? If anything, we should pray more. And so the very first Christians, and this would go on for, for quite some times, would pray the Lord's Prayer at least three times a day. It's powerful. It's very powerful. Now here are the words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What I'd like to do is sort of like a puzzle, look at the individual pieces of this, and then what we'll do is we'll step back and put all the pieces together and take a look at the big picture. Like you want to look at individual phrases and words, but you also want to see the big picture. And so first, it begins with our Father in heaven. Now, just the first word, okay, preface. Um, at one point, I've already said this, five years ago or 10 years ago. I don't know when. I've said it multiple times. At one point, we're going to do a whole long series, like an eight-week series just on the Lord's Prayer. But since we still have two years in Matthew, we can't spend 10 weeks on here. People always remind me, you said at some point we'd do 1 Corinthians and Leviticus and Romans and Hebrews. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Just not in the next two years. So we'll do a big giant Lord's Prayer thing. But I'm telling you, like each line of this is a whole sermon. But we're going to do a, a faster pace today. Because watch, just check this. Okay. We have such cultural blind spots that we miss things that are incredibly profound. What I mean by blind spots is, you know, even if you're a good, well, even if you're, if you're a bad driver, this is certainly true. But even if you're a good driver, you have blind spots just by the way your car's made and the mirrors. And sometimes even like you thought you looked like, whoa, there's another car coming. So you have to be aware of your blind spots. You do your best to be aware of them. Well, we have such cultural blind spots that we, we miss the significance of the first word. Our. It's not my father in heaven. We're a hyper-individualistic culture, right? It's always about the individual. Embedded in the Lord's Prayer is this idea that this prayer is a communal activity. It takes place in the community of the people of God. It's not our. I mean, it's not my, it's our. It's, it's to be done together. This is the prayer of the people of God. And the people of God pray to the Father. Now, this is in rhythm with a clear pattern that's established all throughout the scriptures. And here's the pattern. Christians are to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. Now, hear me. Um, I am not saying that it is wrong to pray and type, address the Father as God or Lord, and I'm not saying um, it's wrong to say, dear Jesus. I'm not saying like when you go tonight, your little kid's going, dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Stop this. You're breaking the clear pattern of scripture. However, however, there is a clear pattern in scripture. And so it's th those other things are inherently or innately wrong, but scripture has given us this pattern, and we pray to the Father 
in the name of the Son, empowered by the Spirit. And you'll see this play again and again and again and again. And there's always, there's always going to be an ex- exceptions, like Stephen, as he's getting stoned, cries out to the Lord Jesus. But the clear pattern is Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. And I think there's reason for this pattern. It's not by happenstance. Christians ought to approach God as a good and wise, loving, heavenly Father. We are his children. He is our Father. And when you approach God as a good and wise Father, it fundamentally shapes the way you view the world, the way you view yourself, the way you view other people, the way you view world events. The problem, the big problem, is that for many of us, our earthly fathers gave us bad examples of what that word father ought to look like. And we have broken relationships with our fathers. We have fathers who weren't there, fathers who left, abuse, a whole host of problems. And so it distorts our view of the word father. And what happens is we then project our earthly experiences of father in the earthly sense onto the heavenly father. The answer to that, however, though, is not to, well, I got these issues, so um, I'm just not going to address God ever as father. You have to work through that stuff. And that takes time, and it's difficult, and it's painful. But the answer is not to run from the image of the Father. It's to restore the image of Father and come to God as a good, heavenly, wise Father who is not against you but for you. But I can tell you on a pastoral level, I run into this again and again and again. Um, and you, you can check your... You, this, this may not prove to be true, but for many people I've asked this, um, I just go, who do you find yourself praying to? And they go, what do you mean? I pray to God. And I go, no, who, how do you start your prayers? And they say, dear Jesus. And again, Jesus is God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's a reason why there's a pattern there. And so oftentimes, not all the time, sometimes it's just the way you were taught. It's nothing more than that. But oftentimes, it's because Jesus, well, he's, he's like the nice part of God. And, you know, he loves us. He says, let the children come. He was a shepherd with the little lambs and he died on the cross. But the father, man, that guy strict and he poured out his wrath, his anger upon. You see what happened to Jesus on the cross? So we have bad atonement theology mixed with emotions and all this stuff going on. And it distorts our vision of who God is. But the answer to that is to work through that. And that takes time and there'll be pain involved, but you have to restore the image of the father. Because speaking to the Bible calls God, God Father, not because it's just some random nice metaphor that the Bible adopted to help you relate to God. It's not just a random metaphor that's given to God. God is eternally the Father, and eternally the Son, and eternally the Spirit. So, classic Christian teaching from the beginning has always held that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. And what that means is Jesus was not created. He's not a created being. When we say he is the only begotten son, he is the eternally begotten son. He has always, for all eternity, been the son. He did not come into being. And the father likewise has been eternally the father of the son. So the word father is not just a made up word. It exists within the relations of the nature of God. Now, that's some, some deep theology, and you don't have to connect all the dots and make perfect sense of that, but know that God has always been 
Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when we call God Father, that isn't just a nice, helpful metaphor. He is the eternal Father. We need to work on that and understand that whatever's happened to us in this broken, fallen world, there is a good and wise heavenly Father who is for us, not against us, and who loves us. We pray, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed here, agiadzo, means to make holy or to sanctify. And this is also something that may hit a cultural blind spot because we don't, we don't typically pray like this. You see this type of prayer in the Old Testament a lot where people would pray um, that God would act for his namesake, that his name would be made holy and sanctified among the people. The logic of it worked like this, was the nations mock you, God. They, they say you're fake. They say you are powerless. But for your namesake, demonstrate who you are. You see this in countless examples, but here's, here's one that really illustrates it. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is in the book of Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nation and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So it's, it's like the nations profane my name. They mock my name. And you know what's even worse than that? My own people do it. But I will save my people, not because of how great they are, but because of my faithfulness to them. Which is incredibly good news to know that God's love is not contingent upon your temporary fleeting behavior and feelings. There's something more, more transcendent that grounds that. And so people would pray in the Old Testament, for your namesake act, which is like the opposite of how, you know, no one would do it this explicitly, but, you know, you might catch yourself, Lord, I know you love me, so out of your great love for me, you know, for my namesake, show your love to me. And, like, it's not denying that God loves you. God loves you. But the reason why you can trust his love is because he's continually demonstrated faithfulness to you and backs up his character. You can trust that he will be faithful, good, and loving because he defends his name. He demonstrates that his name is love and faithfulness and righteousness. Righteousness. So we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These lines are extremely important to me in my understanding of, of the Christian faith. And they also, again, run in the streams of Old Testament thought. The hope of Israel in the Old Testament is that one day God would come and establish his kingdom. He would right the wrongs of this world. He would fix the brokenness, the evil, the suffering, the pain. He'd do away with that and he'd bring about his kingdom and he would vindicate his people. This was their hope. This was their longing. Now, oftentimes, um, we might pray something along, like even if we don't, again, pray this explicitly, the sentiment is there. Lord, oh man, this world is messed up. Lord, make sure I live a long, good life, and when I die, I get to go to heaven. Now, nothing in and of itself wrong with that. 
I've, I've prayed that, like, Lord, I want to live long and see great-great-grandkids, and I want to, you know, see them all serving you. There's nothing wrong with that. But you also have to understand that you might miss the emphasis that's there in Scripture. That's, Lord, please act now. May your kingdom come to bear in our world as it is in heaven. We're tired of seeing injustice and wrong and war. We're tired of seeing kids that don't have enough to eat. We're tired of seeing people that don't have clean water to drink. We're tired of sex trafficking, abuse. We're tired of seeing people addicted to substances. We're tired of seeing all this hurt and pain. So Lord, bring your kingdom to bear here in our home. Now we want to see it with our eyes. And so this longing and this ache to say, God, bring it here. There's a, there's a saying many of you might know. Uh, and it's like everything, we always say this a thousand times. I have to preface this because you might have said it, and I'm sure there's a context in, way, in which it might be appropriate. But at its core, it's, it's misleading. The saying is this. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Raise your hand if you hear that. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Okay, there might be a context in which that's like someone you need to tell that. The, the idea is that you're so pie in the sky and lofty that you, you're just, I'm going to heaven, but you don't care about human suffering down here. So I get that. However, if you have heaven and earth and God's kingdom in their proper categories, that statement is the opposite of what is true. It's when you understand rightly what heaven is and earth is and God's kingdom is that you will be motivated to actually do God's business here on earth as it is in heaven. It's when you, for example, you can be generous with your money when you know earthly money is fading and fleeting and there's things more important than that, namely eternity. You will treat other human beings better when you understand that there's more to them they're not just products of random chance and atoms and particles and a cluster of hormones acting in some physical body. When you understand that people are more than products of random chance, but people made in the image of God, you will love them and treat them differently because you believe their life matters for eternity. They're not just some product of random chance. The first Christians gave their bodies to the flame because they believed that there was life beyond the flame. When you understand the transcendent and God's kingdom, what it ultimately does is to say, this life is short and it matters, so I better be about my father's business. And you will live differently. You will live differently. Another way to say it comes out in the Sermon on the Mount later. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom. Now this prayer at this point, um, again, is just echoing and building upon the, the hope of Israel. I want to show you a prayer that's said by many Jewish people still today called the Kaddish. And it's a very, very old prayer. It probably goes back to the time of Jesus. The earliest copies are in Aramaic. And this is still said to this day, but as I read it, listen to how close it sounds like the, 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 the Lord's Prayer. Because the themes and hopes are, are still there embedded in the scriptures. Exalted and hollow be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. 
May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel speedily and at a near time. Now, do you feel something here? There's an ache here just like there was an ache in the, 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 the Lord let your kingdom come. May, may your kingdom be established in the lifetime of these people. Why? Because we're tired of seeing the suffering and the violence and the death and the abuse. We're tired of it, Lord. So bring about your kingdom and you have this ache inside of you. It's a longing for God, his presence, and his kingdom. And we ache for it. One of the beautiful things that you could do, uh, there's a line in here that you could pray over, like if you have children or grandchildren or maybe nieces or nephew or, or little ones that are important in life to you. Um, this line is so profound. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. Like take your kid or your grandchild, put your hand on their shoulder. And it's like you pray and end it. And may he establish his kingdom in your lifetime. And the need for this has become more acutely pronounced as of late. Because why would you pray that? Because I don't, I don't want my child to see the horrors of this world. I don't want him to see what my eyes have seen. I want him to be spared from the brokenness of this world. And again, this has become more acutely pronounced like in the last couple years and there's so much worry and, and doubt and evil and you're just going like, you know, you reach a point at least for me, uh, and many of you know what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, I stopped at some point praying all about myself, and it goes to like, just, just protect my babies, Lord. Make sure my babies are okay. Make sure the kids are okay. And that may not even be your direct children. That may just be like the little ones in general. You know, Jesus says, the little ones matter. And it's like, as of late, there's this like gut level feeling of, Lord, I don't want my, my kids, my grandkids to grow up in a world like this. I don't want them to, I want them to inherit something better. And what the Christian prayer is, in your lifetime, may you see God's coming kingdom because you have no idea how good it's gonna be. You have no idea how good it's gonna be. And there's this deep ache and longing for God to act. And may you see the coming of his kingdom in your lifetime as well. You know, it's, um, it's very easy to become numb to evil because in the current cultural moment we live in, there's technology and entertainment and cell phones and notifications and rings and beeps and, and likes and dislikes and there's all this kind of noise and chaos around that you can get so occupied with the distractions that you forget how broken the world is and you become numb to evil. It's like, ah, next thing's next thing, another day, another day. Christians don't become numb to evil. We care about hurting and suffering. And we say things like, come Lord Jesus. Now, I am not saying this just because we got lucky and we sang the song, come Lord Jesus this morning. But you see this numbness pronounced because if you were to examine like, all the Christian worship songs that are being written. All across, all the different churches and all the different bands that write this stuff. How many of them at the core of their message is the phrase, come Lord Jesus? Or even the sentiment, Jesus come again, Jesus come again. 
We need you, Lord. Come right now. May I see the return of Christ. It's for the most part absent. Like there's a, there's a few songs. This was like the major theme of the first Christians. How does our, how does our Bible end? How does our Bible end? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring your kingdom in the pain, in this mess. We ache and we long for your presence. And it's like, we just kind of get numb to it. There's a thousand things to be distracted about. There's another prayer or a, a part of a prayer. It's called the Berakha. It's It means blessing. Uh, and this type of phrase of blessing was used in Jesus' day and it's still used today. It's Barukata Adonai Elhenu Melacho Alam. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. I want to emphasize the word king here. Um, we talked a little bit about this on Christmas Eve, but another cultural blind spot that we have is when we picture the good heavenly father, we often don't picture God as king because we, we live in a society where like we vote on things. We elect leaders. We have presidents, not kings. And so often we can, can have God as like, you know, you co-chair the board with me. We can get two-thirds votes and kick you out. You know, you're, you're like a president. You're the co-pilot. You're my homeboy. It's like, no, he's king of kings, lord of lords. You don't like negotiate with the king. You don't, you don't, you don't have a say. He says, jump. You say, how high? And he's not this overbearing authoritarian king. He's a good and wise king. And so you want to obey him because he wants what's best for you. Nevertheless, he's still king. And so Christians long for the good king to bring his kingdom, to vindicate his people, to right wrongs, and to defeat evil. And that message is so strong, it is embedded into the human consciousness. It is in us, whether we like it or not, the idea that a good king will come and save us and bring about his kingdom, vindicate his people, and take them to the promised land. That is embedded into our consciousness. Think about all the stories we tell again and again. Think about the movies we like watching again and again. They are stories on replay, a thousand different manifestations of a very similar idea a good king is going to come and save us and bring his kingdom. He will make us a part of his family and we'll go to the promised land. You see that in anything from Lord of the Rings all the way to Nacho Libre. <laughs> what is Nacho Libre? It's about someone who you don't think can come and save you, but he actually is truly the forgotten king who comes and vindicates his people. He saves them, make them a part of his family and takes them to the promised land. These stories are doing the same thing again and again and again and again, just in a thousand different ways. Little children will act this out before they can even articulate the plot structure of this. They'll start playing like a kingdom and there's some bad guy or some dark force and a dragon. We see this take place all across different cultures, different times. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There's all kinds of debate about what daily bread means. You can read the scholars and the commentaries and there's all these different theories, but I'm, I'm like 99% sure, I could be wrong, I'm 99% sure that daily bread actually means 
daily bread. Um, I'm convinced that people in northern Galilee hearing this message in the first century, when they heard Jesus say, yeah, and pray for daily bread, they go, yeah, we pray for that all the time because daily bread is not promised. And so we try to like spiritualize it and turn it into a bunch of other things. But no, the first people, when they first heard it, like, we're praying that God would provide today. And there, there's something profound in that. Lord, I have worries, both real and fictional. Worries that you make up that aren't real about tomorrow, about next year, about 10 years from now. I have all these worries. Help me to trust you just with today. Lord, I just want to trust you with today. Help me to trust you to provide my needs just for this day. Tomorrow has its own worries, Lord. Let me, let me walk with you today. And of course, there's, there's other meaning in that and other echoes and allusions. For example, one would be um, the daily bread that was experienced by Israel. Israel's delivered out of Egypt. Moses leads them into the wilderness. They're in the wilderness of death. They have no food and God rains down. What is it bread? Manna bread. Like no one knows what this stuff is. And they had to rely on God doing this daily in order to survive. But, but nevertheless, the main idea is that they had to trust God to provide the day's needs. How many times do we worry? Like, it was, I, was, I was intentional with what I said earlier. We worry about real things and fictional things, fake things. We make up things to worry about. Worry about things tomorrow, a year from now. I've worried about things 20, 30 years from now. Give us this day our daily bread. You are a good heavenly father. Tomorrow's not promised, nor is it deserved. So help me to trust you. I know you are for me and not against me. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We talked about this several weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about forgiveness, so we won't spend long here, but essentially, the prayer is saying that like, we've received forgiveness like a stream. The water flows down to us. We receive forgiveness, and then we ought to extend that to the world. And again, that's, that's difficult. There's all kinds of different levels of wrong that have been done to us. Some are easy to forgive. Some are almost some will be so bad that unless you have supernatural aid, you won't be able to do it. But you work through it, the pain and the, the, the angst and, and all the stuff associated with it, and you say, God, you've forgiven me, and now help me to extend that forgiveness into the world. And lastly, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a hiccup that many people have with this first phrase because it's lead us not into temptation. And you might be familiar that in the book of James in the New Testament, it says like God is not tempted and he doesn't tempt people. So if you're not gonna be tempted by God, why would you say lead me not into temptation? And again, like much of this prayer, it's running in the same patterns and streams of so much Old Testament thought. And the idea is this, God, protect me from entering into the hour of trial. Protect me from the place of temptation. Protect me from the place where I am tempted and my weakness overtakes me and the sin overcomes me. Think of it like this. Let's pretend it's the new year and you do, you do what uh, many Americans do at the new year. You make a commitment to exercise more, to eat healthier and lose, lose a few pounds, okay? Been here many times. 
You know, we all, it's like do it. It's like a tradition. Okay. And you go, Lord, I want to stick to it this time. I want to be a little bit healthier. My grandson, he can almost take me now. You know, he can almost take me in a race. He's jumping farther than me, and I want to be able to beat my grandkid for a couple more years. So I'm get a little healthier. Say, Lord, you know on my commute to work, I passed that donut shop. And you know that depending upon the flow of traffic, oftentimes they're cooking them lush goodies right as I drive by. And you know my window broke, and I can't afford to fix it so I could roll it up. And I just get all the fresh aroma and goodness. So Lord, for just the first couple weeks as I get with this, help the traffic flow be different so that I don't have to drive by and be tempted by that evil. Just help me, Lord. Okay, what you are asking is to be protected from a situation where your weakness might overcome you. That's a silly illustration, but that's the point. Protect me. Lead me not into that. I don't want to go there. And there's so much wisdom there. Oftentimes we think we're like, we could reach a state of maturity in Christianity where it's like, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I went to small group this week and I read the Bible this week, so I can put myself in this temptation and it's not going to affect me. No, pray. Don't put me in a situation where I might be in a state where temptation would grab a hold of my weakness because guess what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, that doesn't mean don't go into evil situations um, because evil situations need Christians. But what I'm saying is it's wise to not put yourself in situations where you can be personally tempted in ways that take advantage of your weakness. So Lord, protect me from that. And then deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And this is fascinating here because we don't, our, our current cultural moment doesn't have the proper categories to talk about evil. We are thoroughly materialistic. So the only things that exist truly in our culture are material things, that which could be observed by the five senses. So like I always use the example of the table. Like I know it's here because there. So what could be put in a test tube and tested, that which is real. Like we don't believe in angels and demons and spiritual beings. That's, that's kind of weird. Oh, you believe in God? Oh, that's sort of cool. I'm glad that works for you but we believe in only that which is material, real. That's the current cultural moment. You see that again and again and again and again. And so with evil, supernatural evil, spiritual evil, the category of transcendent evil, we simultaneously do two things in our culture. We want to move on from that. We want to put in a casket, bury it, and put the dirt over it. But then at the same time, it's so like glaringly obvious that it's real that all of our movies and stories and language speak of it in that way but you have to understand if you have a strictly materialist worldview there cannot exist the type of category of evil the bible talks about a spiritual supernatural evil a transcendent type of evil you can have things like and by the way this is why we emphasize these words in this culture you can have something like brokenness or something's not working right or something's wounded or you know maybe there's a little glitch in the matrix but if we fix this then this will operate better see it's a mechanical understanding of the universe things aren't working right therefore this went bad but then you see stuff in this world that is so evil 
You can't attribute it to something merely not working right, like the mechanics just weren't operating correctly. This is so evil. And even if even you might be an atheist and you still begin to adopt language that corresponds to this view of evil, you might say, this was so evil, vile, monstrous, and demonic. How could this evil happen? Because you immediately have to employ language that betrays the very worldview that you supposedly stand upon. Christians believe that there's a category of evil that goes beyond just material things not working right or operating right. There is a spiritual reality to things. And so this prayer says, lead me not into temptation, and please, Lord, deliver us from evil. And that's more than just things not working right. Deliver us from evil. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we wrap it up, I want to do what I mentioned earlier. Take the step back. We looked at the individual pieces and now let's look at the full picture. And there's a thousand things that come to us from the big picture. But as we start the new year, I want to focus on one. I believe that in every square inch of the Lord's prayer is an ache, a longing, a desire for something more. You want God to make his name holy, to sanctify it. You don't want the nations to mock it. You want God's kingdom to come because you're tired of evil and suffering. You want to trust him more. You want to trust him just for daily bread. Help me not worry about this other stuff and just trust you in the now. You want to be able to forgive others the way he's forgiven you. And you want to be protected from the hour of trial and tribulation. And you want to be saved and spared from evil. There is this longing and ache that's there. So it's every square inch. I mean, just walk through it. You could see how powerful it is. Father, my good heavenly Father, I know you are good. I know you are wise. But the nations, they mock you. People mock you. My loved ones and my friend mock you. They say you're fake. They think I am an idiot. They say this about you. Say that about you. For your name's sake, prove your goodness and faithfulness to them. Demonstrate how good you are to them. Bring about your kingdom and your righteousness. And why do, I wanna, why do we want to bring about God's kingdom and his righteousness? Because the world is so broken. It's so terribly messed up and evil. You see images on the news. There's bombs and missiles. We live in a world where parents can get so desperate that they're flinging babies over bobbed wire fences because whatever's on the other side of the bobbed wire fence, it's better than what's behind me. And I'm tired of seeing stats on sex trafficking and abuse and domestic violence and people addicted to substances that are literally stealing the life out of them. I'm tired of this. I don't want to see it anymore. So Lord Jesus, bring about your kingdom. And Lord Provide for us daily. It's hard to trust you because I got all these issues going on in my mind, this and that and that. So Lord, 
You've been good to me. Help me to trust in you. And as I walk in that trust, Lord, help me to recognize that you've forgiven me of much, of so much. So help me be a person that extends that forgiveness out into the world. And when I do that, may people see your goodness. And lastly, Lord, I know I am so weak. So protect me from the hour of trial. Deliver me not unto evil. So do this for me, Lord. And you develop this ache. You don't become numb to evil. You be about your father's business. You care about his kingdom. And so one way that you could start the new year by developing a habit that helps you develop this ache is by embedding the Lord's prayer into your mind and to your heart. And so this is like the simplest application you are ever going to get at a sermon from South Valley Community Church. Super concrete on the nose. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. And we have cards in the back on the way out. Just you get something, you can hang it in your car, hang it in your, in your room, and begin to memorize the Lord's Prayer. So step one is to just memorize it. Step two is I'd like you to try reciting it three times a day. Christians for hundreds of years had this practice as just routine. Morning, afternoon, nighttime. The Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It may take you a long time to memorize it. Read it three times a day and remind yourself that there is embedded in this prayer a longing for God and his presence and his kingdom. That's what we long for. Come, Lord Jesus. Show up in powerful ways. May your kingdom come to bear in our home, on this earth as it does in heaven. So, you, so memorize it and recite it three times a day. You're going to forget. You're going to do it once on one day and then you forget the other two. Don't, don't do what we do with other New Year's resolutions. Like, oh, I'm, I'm off. And you stop. And we're going to remind you the next coming weeks. Are you doing it? In fact, you're probably going to get an email tomorrow about it. <laughs> Commit this. Christians had this prayer memorized. And we need to have it memorized too. Because trust me, in the hour of trial, you'll need this prayer. You'll need it. Have it here and here. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus not only teaches us the Lord's Prayer, but he himself embodies the Lord's Prayer. So it's not just a lesson of Jesus. He embodies the Lord's Prayer for us. Who is the one who goes to his Father and desires to make the name of the Lord holy and sanctified and hallowed? It is Jesus who in the garden of agony before the cross prays, not my will, but Father, your will be done. It's not my will, it's yours. Who is in himself our daily bread? And who has forgiven us in order that we might forgive others? And who faced the, the test and battle with Satan's sin and death so that we wouldn't have to walk that road? Because there was a test none of us could pass. But our good king went through the hour of trial on our behalf. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. 
when you take this, remember. So Lord, we remember in taking this bread that you are our daily bread and your body was broken on our behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the cup of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. And as we say time and time again as we take this, when we take it, it's a way to confess Jesus as Lord and to say we will continue to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Jesus, you have been good to us and faithful to us. Help us to be faithful to you. Now, we're going to close this service by singing a, a unique song to close. Um, it's a song that, um, it's one of those ones that most people know the melody to, but you don't know any of the words. And it's a song that's sung every New Year's. New Year's Eve, you'll hear it. And so you, you might not at first, but eventually the, 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 the melody you'll start to get and you'll be able to sing along. Um, it's called Auld Lang Syne. Um, I actually had to look up how to pronounce that. Problem is, when you look it up, you find out there's multiple pronunciations. Um, and it was originally written several hundred years ago. It was a Scottish poem, and it was put to a different melody. Um, eventually, they put it to a different melody, the melody that we know now. And oftentimes, in, like back in the day, you didn't have recorded music, and so groups of people and cultures would have like 50 melodies that they would know, and then you'd change out different lyrics and put them in the different melody so that everyone in the room, oh yeah, I know that melody. Okay, well, here's the lyrics to this melody and you can all sing along. And so at some point, this poem was put to the melody that we now know. And then in the 1920s at some point, um, it was sung on a New Year's Eve special of some sort, and then it started catching on as a song to sing in the new year. Well, someone kind of continued that tradition, but rather than changing the melody, they changed the lyrics and they focused all the lyrics on Christ and as a way to enter into the new year. Now, personally, my family has sort of made a tradition of singing the song together leading into the new year. And we've done this once or twice before and it's sort of becoming a tradition at the church because the, the, the lyrics are honestly the, like, the perfect way to enter in the new year. I can't even listen to the song without crying anymore. It's, it's like, I don't know what it is. And it's not even a sad song, it's a good song but there's something in it that just resonates so profoundly. And to top it off, there's also these echoes and illusions of, of the Lord's prayer found in it. So as we close this service and enter into this new year, I'd like us to continue in this tradition of singing this song.